Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. Perhaps you didn't notice when Earth Day 2021 came and went. After all, governments, corporations, and citizens like you and me haven't been able to restore our Earth, this year's theme, in the 51 years it's been around. And if you're thinking I'm being a little too pessimistic, a recent study showed that it would cost $7 trillion to stabilize global biodiversity by 2050, not much more than what the United States has spent on war since 2001. In the May issue, Zach St. George discusses the need to revise another product of early 70s environmental awareness, the Endangered Species Act. Created in order to bring back animals from the verge of extinction, This piece of legislation has inadvertently offered stronger legal protections to pieces of land than it has to certain organisms. Its ambiguous definition of what constitutes a species has also led to a lot of lawsuits. As St. George writes, the Pacific Legal Foundation, a group of developers, ranchers, and other parties, has been lobbying to remove the California gnat catcher, a bird that, to some scientists, does not even exist as a distinct species, in order to gain access to some prime real estate. While that sounds as unquestionably evil as the ESA seems unquestionably good, the crux of their legal argument focuses on the bill's ambiguous definition of what counts as a species. I spoke with St. George about these taxonomic, evolutionary, and philosophical questions, and about the urgent need to reformulate the ESA to address a not-too-distant future of mass extinctions. There's no one way that we classify species, and all of them work well when comparing two animals that are obviously different. But when it comes to carving out definitions between organisms that are very similar, these frameworks fail or get a little murky, which is a more common problem than determining that a, you know, that chicken isn't a sheep. So the deeper problem seems to be that many of these taxonomies force an overly Western or anthropomorphic template onto nature. Is this another way in which adhering to or building off of Aristotelian logic is holding back our understanding of complex nuanced systems in nature? Yeah, I mean, it, it, as you say, it's a, it's a super old question. I mean, I think that basically, if if you look across um, cultures, there's there's been a lot of work done on this, looking at pre-Linnaean. Uh, hunter-gatherer cultures across the world end up classifying um, basically the species or, or the the organisms, the living things that they see around them by a, a pretty remarkably similar framework. And so, let's see, I'm spacing on the name, but I think Scott Atran or, is, is um, one of the people who have done this work. But basically, anthropologists have come up with what they call kind of the the folk taxonomy. And so, you see this across cultures, which is basically starting with, you know, life uh, divided from non-life. So, you know, rocks and, and, and sand and dust and things are clearly in a different category than, um, living things. And then you have the basic divide between plants and animals, which kind of corresponds to kingdoms in, in modern Linnaean taxonomy. And then you go down the line, you have bigger categories like trees and then, you know, oak trees and, um, than a red oak tree when you when you get to this kind of folk specific level 
Um, and then you might even have a, a certain group of these trees of, of red oaks that look kind of different. And that can be kind of a, a variety or subspecies like a red oak with, I don't know, um, short trunks or something. But anyway, so there's you kind of see this same framework over and over again throughout history. It just seems to be kind of a fundamental thing that, that, that people do. Um, but then the, the issue that arises is in the 1700s, you have Linnaeus come along and, and basically formalize these pre-existing structures that people have been using. And you have the, you know, the, the descending taxonomic structure and then the binomial, the two-part formal Latin and Greek name that you give a species that kind of identifies it um, and, and where it fits on that tree of life. And so that works really well. Most of the time, you know, like you say, chickens and, and sheep are quite easy to tell that one is not the other. The issue is that, you know, things evolve from each other. And so the big gaps that we see between, you know, sheep and chicken, um, it's not that they're wholly unrelated. It's just that it's been a really long time. And so all the intermediate forms in between them um, are gone. So it's kind of like a sculpture in relief. And as you get to the place where the the sculpting is is not very deep, it's hard to say where one ends and the next begins. And so it's not a huge portion of, of life that's really tricky. I think, you know, the taxonomist I spoke with said maybe 15, 20 percent for for many life forms of, you know, that's where you start to say, well, is it a species? Is it a subspecies? And so on. But of course, it's the it's the difficult cases that we end up talking about the most. Right. And I guess, why is there that need for people to classify things, like to, to, to create these taxonomies? Yeah. I mean, taxonomy is kind of the framework of how we interact with um, the living world, uh, the non-human world. You know, I guess you can sort of imagine just going around and, and not having names for, for everything around you, but that um, and, and certainly many of us in the modern world do that. Like I'm, I'm looking out my window at all sorts of plants that I have no idea what they are um, or where they belong. Um, <laughs> but for those things that affect us, if some bird was like dive bombing my uh, porch every time I went out there and I didn't know what it was, I would be like, oh, that's the dive bombing bird. So, you know, I think there's, <laughs> you, just, you just like naturally assign names to things for, for reasons. And that allows you to then talk about it with other humans. Um, and so, of course, in order for us to eat something and tell someone else about, say, it's good to eat or bad to eat, uh, in order for us to, to use it as medicine, any number of things to conserve it is the, the point of the article, um, we really need to be able to describe it. And so I think, you know, you start with a name. And the difficulty is, is, is yeah, that um, sometimes it's difficult to tell one thing from the other. And sometimes the differences, um, don't matter too much, but other times when you have um, a lot of money riding on it or, mm -hmm. or a conservation outcome, as is the case with the, with the, the bird in this article, um, you know, it becomes important. And so the, the sort of fuzziness becomes really contentious. Right. And could you discuss the differing approaches and debates within the taxonomy community and is there sort of a push to more consistently define species or is it more trying to rid ourselves of the murkiness between a California gnat catcher and the 15 other gnat catchers that 
exist or that we under we know we recognize right i mean you know i think coming up with a single definition of species has proven to be really difficult um even by the time charles darwin wrote or published the origin of species in the the mid 1800s you know it was already an old debate it was it was already something you know he was like seemed kind of tired of basically like i say the 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 issue is that because things evolve from each other there's always going to be cases where you're kind of on the very edge of two things splitting it's kind of a potential split like is it is this split going to stick will we wind up with two species maybe maybe not but so there's this evolutionary reality on the one hand which is is why darwin was was kind of impatient um what is a species well it's you know it's it's kind of this thing that is in some stage of evolving and may not be completely distinct but on the other hand you have that that real world demand for categories you know is is this the kind of bird that that dive bombs me when i step outside or is it not um is it a bird we want to conserve or is it some other thing and really the the issue at hand in in this article is that um the endangered species act which is the basically the the most powerful conservation law in this country has a, a fairly imprecise definition of species which again uh is is actually kind of in its imprecision fairly faithful to the uh evolutionary reality hmm. but it's not very convenient when you're say a, a farmer who has some thing on your land that may or may not be an endangered species the dive bombing bird you can't right. work <laughs> you're like get this guy away and some scientist is like excuse me He's in danger. Exactly. Um, exactly. So can you talk about the evolution of the Endangered Species Act? You know, how did it come about? And what other functions does it perform besides just uh, saying, hey, farmer, you can't shoot the dive bombing bird? <laughs> I feel like relying on the dive bombing bird is going to be taken as evidence of how little... Um, I actually know about birds. <laughs> you? Um, <laughs> <laughs> what about me? <laughs> so, so I mean, the the Endangered Species Act, you know, it kind of came in this moment in the '70s, kind of during the the Nixon administration, when there was all sorts of environmental stuff being passed um, on a bipartisan basis. It's kind of unimaginable today, but you had, I mean, the Clean Water Act and EPA and and stuff like that all coming. Um, at the same time, but the the Endangered Species Act it, it grew out of earlier legislation that that dealt with rare and endangered species species that seemed to be in some danger of going extinct without protections. It was drafted by staffers, as as is usually the case with legislation, I guess. But wait, did Dick Cheney write this? What's going on? <laughs> <laughs> he may have. He's a, he's a sneaky guy. Um, so, so the the people who were passing this law, the the legislators themselves, didn't have a super sophisticated understanding of um, the the kind of evolutionary reality and the the fact that a this question of is a species a species is is that always a clear yes or no answer? Um, they didn't realize that was going to be sometimes a tricky question. You know, with the Endangered Species Act, really the bigger thing they didn't 
probably understand um, in, in some senses was just the fact that it was going to have an effect on private land and, um, you know, really, really have far reaching effects that from a conservation point of view have, have proven super useful and, and helpful, but was apparently not what they intended. And if you want more on, on that specific question, anyone listening, um, I suggest Noah's Choice by Charles Mann and Mark Plummer. They wrote a, a really good book about this from, I think, the mid-90s. But just the question of like the way that the Endangered Species Act in its effects really outstrips the intent of the people who passed the law. Interesting. And we're talking about trying to create a definition of species and these different the questions of precision and whether something actually is a separate species at all. And the California gnat catcher, it's hard not to see it all as some way imitating on the level of language, this functional relationship between humans and other species. You know, we're trying to separate the gnat catcher from its world very precisely so we can protect it. But in some sense, it's this act of seeing nature as a tiny disconnected unit that that create the danger in the first place, right? This isn't so much of a criticism of that attempt, but I'm just wondering if this sort of paradox has been present for you when you were thinking about the story. Yeah, I mean, there's always the question of, you know, are our categories reflective of what's happening in in uh, reflective of kind of the objective nature and i mean that's this is you quickly get into philosophy which i'm even less first to to talk about but i think you look at the higher taxonomic categories um like genus uh order family etc well here can you break those down just really quickly for people who do not remember high school biology yes so and 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 so this is kind of the framework it's a little altered from what linnaeus provided but basically the framework is you have domain kingdom phylum class order family genus and species and so the only thing that we can actually see around us are species you know, you don't look around you and say, oh, there's a genus. You can only really see individuals of species. So, you know, there, there's there's a lot of debate about um, going back again, centuries, about kind of the reality or usefulness of class or uh, phylum, you know, and family and so on. At the at the far opposite end, at the narrower end of that that kind of descending scale, so at the species end, um, something that's been really interesting in the last several decades is that the, the widespread availability of genetic technologies and just just the fact that it's now pretty easy to to take some genetic barcode from individuals and, and groups and kind of look at how they're related to each other. Um, there's been nothing messed up about that at all, by the way. <laughs> Especially when it comes to people. <laughs> right, right. Well, I mean, I think I think the just quickly, I mean, the genetic evidence has been really, um, I think, useful in pointing towards the fact that, um, you know, kind of skin color and, and other physical traits are not like a, <laughs> we're all the same species. We're all like exactly. identical. And so yeah. I think there's been a, that myth, um, the, the racist myth um, has been usefully uh, dispelled somewhat, or uh, I shouldn't say dispelled. It's obviously very much with us still. But yeah. um, so, so with this 
new availability of genetic barcoding and, and, and more in-depth uh, genetic analysis, we found over and over again that species we really thought we knew pretty well are actually, oh shoot, it's two or three or four species. So, and not just uh, very, very similar gradations that we had noticed. You'll sometimes have things that are as different as a human and a chimpanzee uh, genetically or a human and a gorilla. And we had thought they were the same species. So um, again, it's a question of perception. Are we necessarily able to notice what's important to the species themselves? So, so yeah, I think, I think it's always a question of, of perception is in there. And there is an objective reality out there of organisms. And, and uh, most scientists think that species have some objective reality. But, um, you know, our perception and understanding of them is a little fuzzy. Going back to what I was asking about earlier, I mean, there's um, there are so many things in nature and the universe itself that are incredibly complex. Science is working to understand those things, but we're in some ways inhibited because we're coming at this from a human perspective. We are thinking about the ways in which not only we relate ourselves to something like species or a group of animals, but also to how dark matter particles work or these, you know, the, there are a lot of things that we are applying a, uh, a human, like it must work this way because that is the way I can think of it working. And it seems like a lot of what would be actually very helpful is to try and divorce ourselves from that limited human perception of how nature works and sort of embrace the complexity of these things, right? But we also, we are limited by the things that we know or what we think we know. So it's it's difficult to kind of get to the objective reality of the thing, as you say, because of how we may be working off of bad data and we don't know it. Right. And, and again, this is a case where the nature of evolution, the fact that it is a continuum, life is a continuum um, and not a series of fully discrete uh, entities, it means that there's probably not an objective uh, definition of species. So um, the conundrum is that, that kind of accepting that reality the the reality is is that evolution is is mushy and therefore what we call species are always going to be some proportion of them are always going to be a little mushy how do you reconcile that with the fact that they're also uh the taxonomy is the way that we interact with the world sometimes in in legal or other ways that demand um some level of objectivity so scientists have have been debating this for many, many years. Um, there is a parallel uh, debate among taxonomists. A couple of years ago, a, a taxonomist and a conservationist, uh, Stephen Garnett and Les Christidis, uh, published an editorial. Uh, I believe it was in Science or Nature somewhere, one of the, one of the big um, journals, basically saying, look, our taxonomy is being used for all these, these legal purposes right now we're deferring to basically policymakers 
and you know people at places like Fish and Wildlife who may not actually be taxonomists, we're deferring to them to make the actual decision in those cases where we are are not firm in our decision. And so they sort of advocated saying, hey, we need to get a commission or, or some kind of field-wide group to make recommendations and actually keep the decisions with the taxonomists. This sidesteps the issue in, in this article, which is that the definition of species in the Endangered Species Act is kind of is kind of mushy. So if you had taxonomists sort of getting together and saying, hey, this is what it should be, um, even if there's some uncertainty or some disagreement, where this is this is the species um, as we understand it, and that's just what you guys should go with. And that would kind of retain the decision making in the hand of of experts rather than kind of outsourcing it to um, people who are not necessarily taxonomists, which is currently the case. And speaking of that, what about the designation endangered? Has that faced similar scrutiny or challenges in the courts, or is it less ambiguous? And how is it defined in the Endangered Species Act? Yeah, again, I think I think it's also somewhat ambiguous, and I don't have a, a full sense of like the the legal history there. But um, some of the people I spoke with, Jake Lee at the Environmental Policy Innovation Center, um, also pointed that out and, and said that that's a that's a problem and and has been a point that. You know, these are these are basically, um, I guess, sort of weak points in the armor that 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 people keep trying to stick their knives in and, and kind of use as a place to keep organisms off the list and doubt and uh, make things less efficient than you than you'd really like in an era when we we know we have so many conservation challenges and um, habitat loss and mass extinction and all the rest. Right. And most of your piece is not just discussing this debate, but through the example of the California gnat catcher. And your piece ends by suggesting that even though Pacific Legal's proposed definitions may not be good for species like the California gnat catcher, a more explicit and democratic framework for defining species and subspecies would be a good thing. So do you see a way for this to come about aside from Pacific Legal's petition? Like, could there be like a Vatican II of taxonomists <laughs> or, some, or something? Or, or just like, what Like, what are the odds that opening this question up democratically leads to a worse outcome for endangered species? Yeah, I mean, you know, that's something that, that several of the people I spoke with said basically is like it would be great to have definitions i'm scared of anything that congress is going to do uh right now (laughs) right but you know i don't know i mean there's the political reality which um doesn't look great i i i guess part of me is is kind of shocked like when you when you look at how the endangered species act is used you were talking earlier about this kind of um artificiality of picking out an individual species or subspecies or population or what have you from its from its kind of settings the way that this coastal california gnatcatcher got um its listing was was basically with the purpose of protecting its environment um mm-hmm. which again is not really how the the act was was intended like it was the habitat was supposed to protect the species not the not the other way around right but conservationists 
it depends who you talk to. Some will say, oh, no, that's that doesn't happen, that people use the species to protect the habitat that they want to protect. But um, that does happen. Certainly it happens. Um, and so I guess I, I just find it a little shocking that like almost 50 years after the Endangered Species Act was passed, it's like we're we're still relying on this document, which has completely different goals, different understandings of the world, different, uh, completely different problems. They weren't thinking about a world where their world relied on a, a underlying stability. You know, there was these species that mm-hmm. were endangered, but they could be saved. But there wasn't the issue that everything was changing at once. And the fact that, you know, habitats are changing, species are moving around the world. It's, it's just a different reality today than it was when the, the ESA was passed. And, um, you know, yet this is still kind of what we rely on. I don't know. I don't, I don't want to. I, I mean, I think the, the scientists should be the ones that lead things as far as um, definitions and, and that sort of thing. I think it would be great. You know, maybe they can pass on, on budget reconciliation, some sort of new, some, yeah, some ESA too with, with more of a habitat based starting point than a species starting point. Right. Climate change has really accelerated, or at least we're really seeing it in a way that is not just like, oh no, this cute little vole is going to lose his home. Because it, the home is already gone, or it is going to go away very soon. Because we focused on, I don't know, making money? <laughs> that seems like the big, the big culprit here. Uh, but when you were talking about the limitations of the Endangered Species Act, and that it was operating at a time when the world seemed like it could be saved or could things could turn around. And instead, over the nearly 50 years since that time, we have not turned things around. We've made things radically worse. Um, and we have even less time to take action on climate change. And yet it really does not seem like it's going to happen. It, it, I mean, I can't help but be reminded of you know something like the Constitution, where it's this very old document that was trying to look ahead. And uh, for some reason, we still take it at its word, even though the situ- situations are completely different now. doesn't mean that the intent is bad. It's like, yeah, free speech, uh, it, it, you know, what, it's, you know, the Fifth <laughs> Amendment, these are good ideas. Don't make soldiers stay in your home. That's good. I'm for that. Uh, but, you know, we have to rethink some parts of these things because the, the the founding fathers did not consider something like the internet I and mean, they did not consider something like automatic rifles. Uh, so it seems like there are a lot of things that need to be rethought. And as you say, it really can't come from government, but it has to come from someplace else. And, you know, you do have to turn to the experts in an era where everybody hates experts. <laughs> but... <laughs> Would you have any, if if we're thinking about different ways to approach this and thinking about the land, you know, in your piece, you mentioned that things like fungi are typically not covered under the ESA, even though a fungus could be providing, it could be a valuable food source for every part of the 
ecosystem, the chain going upward. And because it's not like it doesn't have a face on it and there's no money behind it, it's not going to get protected. Do you feel like switching that animal first idea of endangered species or as as the um, the sign of that things are really bad? It could be one of many things we do to uh, steer the ship away from disaster when it comes to climate change. There's kind of two competing pieces, which is, um, of course, an ecologist, you know, even as limited, uh, even as far beyond the, the average person's understanding, um, an ecologist might, might have such a greater understanding of an ecosystem. You know, I think they still tend to be quite humble in saying, like, look, there's a lot we just don't understand of how this community of species is working together. Um, right, because they're an expert, and experts know what the, the limits of their uh, knowledge most of the right, time. <laughs> right, and so, so I mean that, but that, but then, so you ask them, like, which species can you safely remove? Which species shouldn't we care about? And they're, it's going to be very difficult for them to give you anything. Um, I mean, I was, I was looking today on. Twitter somewhere there was kind of a people um, dunking on this guy who some I don't know some some titan of industry who had said something about um, you know I'm all for like endangered species but do we really care care about some so and so buckwheat and then everyone was like well yeah man like hey dumbass like of course we care about it but <laughs> and so there's the fact that yes every species is its own unique thing that is irreplaceable um, and is at the end of a, you know, billion year long evolutionary track. And we don't know how valuable things are. We don't really have a good way of, of um, objectively valuing things. And on the other hand, we're faced with finite resources and time and, um, you know, pressures. But so we just we just don't really we're we're not able to really have a conversation about like which stuff do we actually care about because there are things that that yeah as you mentioned like there's things that we kind of implicitly put a lower value on like like fungi for instance um, partially just probably due to the fact that we understand it so much so much worse than um, animals but um, you know we just in an era of climate change and habitat loss and um, extinction, we just don't really have a good way to talk about value. Um, and it's sort of, as, as this guy getting dunked on was kind of evidence, like it's, it's sort of a taboo even like, yeah, I mean, I think in among ecologists, it's, it's just sort of taboo to put a higher value on one thing over another. I mean, I, first of all, I'm very shocked to hear that there was such disrespectful, uh, language going on on Twitter but, because somebody <laughs> believed something different from other people. Yes. But, I, I mean, the, the value question is, you know, it's, it is it is uncomfortable because you don't want to, no one wants to be the person that's like, yeah, that thing should die because it's, it's unseemly. It is an unseemly thing, but, you know, we are reaching a point where a lot of things are going to start dying because we had a chance to change things and we chose not to. And when I say we, I mean the 10 largest uh, corporations <laughs> on the planet who do the vast majority of pollution and uh, using like a, I don't know, metal straw is really not going to help help the whales. 
Real <laughs> shocking. Um, so I guess I would just say like on a, and I think this is part of, you know, the conversation we've been having, like this is, your your piece is impressively compressed about this insanely complex issue. <laughs> what, I mean, and it's, and again, it's like, it's bringing, it brings up so many different problems and uh, philosophical questions that probably don't have a right answer, but we have to choose an answer pretty soon. Um, so was there anything in this story that you really wanted to include, but you had to cut? <laughs> yeah, I would have to thank uh, Matt Sherrill for that. He really kept the, the my editor, he kept the range pretty tight on the, on the word count. But, um, but uh, <laughs> he's a good dude. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, there's so much there's there's that parallel um, debate among taxonomists themselves. Um I spoke with a ton of evolutionary biologists um, who, who didn't make it in the piece. Just sort of, you know, I mean, their perspective again is is echoing what what Darwin and, and the gentleman naturalist era folks were saying, which is just that you know, species maybe don't really have an objective reality, and therefore there's no definition that's ever going to accurately reflect the scientific reality. And and you know, they were generally against um, offering any kind of definition they said basically the the mushy language of the ESA as it exists currently does a pretty good job of reflecting you know evolutionary reality so you know I don't think the I don't think the petition is probably going anywhere um, given the current administration um, seems unlikely to, to give it too much um, too much consideration which which I think is, is good. You know, I said to Matt at some point, this is a this is a story where there's like three pieces that support entire fields of academics and scientists. So you've got like the evolutionary biology side, um, you've got the legal side, and then you know the the conservation side. And all three of these things are are, are really complicated. Um, any one of them, you know, there's just so much more to that than you can possibly fit in a 2,500 word article. Um, that said, I think at the length it was, it hopefully gives a good taste of kind of what the, what the issues are, this kind of oddity, um, evolutionary oddity at the, and, and linguistic oddity at the center of the, the Endangered Species Act. But yeah, I mean, you know, there's, there's just so much, <laughs> there's, there's so much more that, that could be said about this, this kind of case and, and all of the pieces that spin off from it. Mm-hmm. I think that's a good place to end, acknowledging uh, complexity rather than coming up with some pat answer. Uh, so <laughs> thank you so much. Yeah. Uh, this is really fascinating. Thanks for doing it. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save.